Hello, everyone, and welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scribbin-Young. I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of Bakar & Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry with 115 lawyers and 11 offices around the U.S. On this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcasting app to make sure you're getting updated with future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the litigation section of the American Bar Association. It's where I make my home in the ABA. The litigation section provides litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org litigation. All persons, including corporations, are supposed to be equal before the law. However, individual jurors may have had some experiences that lead them to harbor negative feelings and attitudes towards companies, especially large corporations. And this bias may follow corporations into the courtroom, whether as plaintiff or defendant. So what can companies do to combat anti-corporate bias in the jury pool? Well, two experienced commercial litigators, Mitch Edwards and Kat Savage, will discuss these issues on the show today. So let me make some introductions. Uh, Mitchell first. Uh, Mitchell Edwards is a partner in Hinkley Allen's Providence, Rhode Island office. He has extensive experience in litigating commercial disputes involving claims of breach of contract, fraud, fiduciary duties, and other business torts, representing banks, financial institutions, healthcare concerns, energy companies, and real estate interests. He also represents manufacturers and distributors in product liability and toxic tort actions. Mitch, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. And let me also introduce Catherine Savage. Kat is an, also an associate at Hinkley Allen. Her work focuses primarily on environmental regulatory work and a variety of land use and permitting issues relating to large-scale renewable energy projects, including offshore wind farms and solar facilities. She represents public utilities and private parties and regulatory matters heard before state agencies. And additionally, Kat has experience litigating complex commercial matters involving shareholder issues in closely held companies and contract disputes. Kat, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks very much for having me, Dave. Well, Kat, let's start with you. Anti-corporate bias is something that I think that we all take for granted, but is there any empirical research or studies that show that this is an actual real thing as opposed to something being a myth or something apocryphal? So there is some empirical evidence to support the existence of anti-corporate bias just generally. One of the things that uh, we read about is this study done by the Booth School of Business and the Kellogg School of Business, both in Chicago. Um, and it's called the Financial Trust Index. It's a telephone study of over a thousand interviews with financial decision makers from a variety of different industries. And the goal of the study was intended to capture the level of trust that Americans have in institutions, all kinds of institutions. So the latest set of results showed that in as of December 2020, trust in large corporations continues to decline, and there has been an especially deep decline in people's trust of financial institutions. So there's only about 31% of respondents had trust in banks or other financial institutions, which is the lowest level since the end of the recession in 2013. So yeah, the, the data does support that people generally don't like and don't trust large corporations. And Mitch, as litigators, we're, we're usually focusing on things that can be done after a case has already been filed against one of our clients. Some things that I like to think about are, you know, what companies can do before a case has been brought to kind of combat that, you know, any future anti-corporate bias jurors may have against them. So what are the things that, that companies can do before a lawsuit is filed against them? 
So these are some broad topics and broad things to consider, but they have some specific applications. So one area to to think about is good citizenry. So being a good citizen uh, as a corporation, just as being a good citizen as an individual, is something that a lot of corporations do think about. Some give lip service to And some actually put into word and deed. So when you have your employees out in the community volunteering, or when you have really good customer service, or when you treat your employees well, or you have some philanthropic endeavors and you're helping the nonprofits in your community, all of that work that corporations do uh, as good corporate citizens are understood by the community, seen by the community, and eventually if and when a corporation is then in the courtroom, may be brought into that courtroom by a prospective juror. Uh, They may have seen the good works that the company has done, and that is something that good citizenry can put you in a better position than just a nameless, faceless corporation that people may have the kind of bias towards that Kat discussed earlier in, in our discussion. So thinking about good citizenry and how you spend your time and your employees spend your time and where you spend your resources in the community, not only is a good thing to do, and there may be good economic motives for it and moral reasons for it, but it may have real tangible benefits if and when your company ends up uh, in court uh, before a jury. Secondly, something to consider if in a specific context is whether or not some conduct occurred, some action occurred, that was so negative, bad, improper, that an apology is warranted. Uh, So often in litigation, companies immediately become defensive and want to deny everything. And that may be appropriate. And obviously, jurisdictions differ. And you want to think about what's an admission versus not an admission, what you're taking on liability for. But in the context of before a lawsuit happens, what are something to consider? One thing to consider is whether an apology is appropriate and whether whether you should take ownership of what happened. And there are reasons for this. One is it may obviate the lawsuit altogether. We cite in an article that Kat and I wrote on this subject an example where the University of Michigan health system began encouraging doctors to apologize for mistakes. And what they saw was that malpractice lawsuits and notices of intent to sue declined significantly after they did that. Now, again, this has really got to be viewed on a case-by-case basis. It's not some general rule to apply without thought and without application to the facts, but there really could be instances that should be considered, and it shouldn't be a sort of a knee-jerk reaction that we don't apologize for anything. Well, that's not what we do here. That, that company should really be considering the facts on the ground and what happened and whether it's appropriate. Uh, and whether it might help you in the long run. And a recent example of that, I guess, would be kind of the Southwest Airlines disasters in terms of getting planes off the, off the ground and getting people to where they needed to go over the over the recent holidays because of weather and you know whether or not there were software issues and the like. And I think that there 
uh, they went about it in a way that apologized for for what happened. I think gave people you know refunds and that sort of thing. I don't think it stopped a lawsuit from happening, but certainly they came across as a company uh, that cared and a company that you know wanted to make sure that they made good on what happened. So we'll we'll see what happens in terms of litigation that kind of followed that event. But certainly they're they're a company that that followed that advice. Yes, yes. And in fact, in the same industry, JetBlue had had also had some inclement weather issues back in 07 and also faced that that need to what, what are they going to do here? Are they going to publicly apologize or are they going to uh, uh, be more defensive and, and not do that? And they also went the route of real public apologies. And there are some who did credit those kind of public apologies with at least perhaps reducing the number of lawsuits that they faced at the time. And there's been some articles written about that as well, which we, which we noted in the piece we wrote for the litigation magazine on this topic. And and thirdly, I just quickly, I would say that you want to assess your position. If something's occurred and, and you want to figure out where you are, you don't necessarily need to wait till you're on the eve of trial to, figure out what what the public's going to think here uh, about your position. Uh, You may save a lot of money and time if you do some focus groups early on, do some mock trials and 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 get some consultants involved. I have found those to be very helpful and really think about how the public is going to react to these things. Now, you may not have all the facts, obviously, pre-litigation. You wouldn't have done all the discovery on the other side, right? So it's not a perfect perfect time to do it, but it may be a time where you can get some real intelligence that allows you to figure out where you're going to go here. Are you going to go for some early settlement pre-lawsuit, or do you have a a defense that's going to ring true? And indeed, a lot of these mock juries and juries in general are really looking for people to accept responsibility and realize when there's accountability is needed. And you may find that out early on if you do some of that work, either pre-litigation or at the beginning of it. Sure. And and I think it makes sense to to talk about, you know, some vendors that that companies might hire and, and attorneys can help with this as well. But in terms of, you know, hiring maybe a, a jury consultant or a public relations firm even uh, to make sure that uh, the, the your client is winning in the or at least is is doing what it needs to do in terms of public opinion for when a, a lawsuit is going to be filed. So getting those vendors kind of lined up, um, I think is extremely helpful as well. Absolutely. I've used the public relations firms can be great partners when you're in a high stakes either dispute or there's a high stakes event that has happened that you think might lead to to a dispute. So to completely agree, Dave. Well, great. Well, Kat, let's bring you back into the conversation. You know, once a, a case is filed, there are things that can be done kind of in the, in the pre-trial stage of litigation. So what are some of the things that can be done in that pre-trial uh, litigation stage? Yeah. So, you know, there's a number of different things, and I'm sure Mitchell weigh in on this too. But I think the first and, you know, most broad is if you can strategically narrow the scope of the dispute through motions in limine, motions to dismiss, um, and really surgically get down to the core of what's at issue, you're going to have a better shot as a corporation in front of a jury because you eliminate the ancillary concerns or the 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 drama or the the things for which there's a whole lot of heartfelt 
claim behind, but not a whole lot of evidence. And uh, so really using the opportunity and being very strategic and thoughtful and surgical in how you narrow the issues leading into trial so that what the jury hears is only what's really truly at issue and not all the other noise. You know, I think there are other topics where you can you can really be effective, but I think, you know, Mitch would have a better sense on on deposition tips and some of the things that follow in the the discovery and pretrial process. Yeah, Mitch, let's let's talk about depositions because I we've had Ken Berman on uh, to talk about kind of preparing uh, clients for uh, depositions and for trial testimony. What are some of the things that we can do to help prepare our clients for these kind of public relations issues that that might crop up uh, during depositions? Yeah, it's really important, uh, especially as more and more plaintiffs are are taking these depositions with the public in mind and videotaping them. And, and perhaps those videotapes we see on the nightly news, all of a sudden your deposition, which was videotaped, is now in the news. And we've seen that in a, in a lot of high profile cases. And I think one thing that's really important is to be con- thinking about the trial and thinking about the jury and thinking about the themes and and what your story is and what the facts are at the time you're preparing your witnesses so that your 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 story at trial will be consistent with and, and supported by the, the sworn testimony at depositions. A lot of the people in the public think that, well, if you just say you don't remember or if you really don't remember something, that that's a great answer. And, and I've heard that a lot, uh, not among lawyers who, of course, know that it's about telling the truth and, and, and your witnesses have to do that. They're under oath. But I have heard among, among folks that they just think, well, depositions don't mean much because they just are saying what that they don't remember or can't recall. And, and we've even seen that in some high profile cases where a lot of people all of a sudden don't have a very good memory about what happened. And that doesn't always help you at trial, right? Because it may be true that you don't remember. And of course, that's that's the truthful answer, or you don't, or you don't know. But at trial, you want to be able to tell your story, right? And if all your witnesses all of a sudden have amnesia and can't remember uh, remember anything, then you're not going to have a, a very good story to tell to the jury. So taking the time to actually learn what the facts are, marshalling the documents, and having a deposition that's substantive so that you're you're getting your story out there and and it's really with the jury in mind and with the trial in mind is really i think really important and something that will it be important especially in litigation where you're dealing with a corporation where they're looking to see who these witnesses are and and maybe some of the executives they've already have some preconceived notions about and and you may want to Consider who those witnesses are going to be and consider using folks up and down the org chart where appropriate and obviously where they have personal knowledge and not necessarily always uh, having someone who's at the top of the org chart as your as your corporate rep or your witness, because it may be that the jury is going to relate more to someone who might be in the middle of that org chart. And these are the types of things that may help combat the anti-corporate bias that we've been talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's key to make sure that you are selecting folks that your potential jury pool is going to like and certainly can as you said relate to because I think at bottom the the issue with anti-corporate bias is that a lot of members of the public don't 
trust corporations. They don't like them. They don't trust them because they they view corporations as just you know wanting to to profit, putting profit over people, if you will. Um, and then to combat that, uh, selecting people that potential jurors can relate to and that they might like or at least can trust what they're saying, I think goes a long way. Don't you agree, Mitch? Yeah, I think that that is critical, and it, it's it's because of and this. This relates to another topic, but your point you just made is really important. I want to focus on it for a second. It's because of people's interactions with corporations that they often have come away with that. Part of it may be because of things they read in the news, but oftentimes it's about their actual interactions with companies. It could be their employer. It could be the bank they use. It could be a manufacturer that made a product that injured someone in their family or themselves. And so most of it has to do with some personal interaction or an interaction of a close family member or friend. And the relation issue is important, but it's also important to find that out in voir dire in jury selection. And you want to, you want to probe that to make sure you're determined, well, do I have someone on this jury who's got a bias here where you can't necessarily just directly ask the question, Hey, do you, do you hate corporations depending on your jurisdiction you know, they limit the kind of questions you can ask in voir dire. But there are ways of getting at that in terms of finding out what their interactions have been or their family's interactions have been with companies, whether they've had good experiences, not good experiences. That, to me, is a critical part of dealing with this anti-corporate bias, assuming you're in you're in court, of course. Right. Some of what we've talked about is pre-litigation. And now we're talking more about you're in you're in the soup. And how do you deal with it? Sure. And that, that makes sense. Mitch, anything else on kind of Wadir once uh, an action has been filed? Any other tips that you might have in making sure that uh, you kind of probe the anti-corporate bias of a potential juror, jury member during Wadir? You know, any good trial lawyer knows what's going on in their community, where the jury pool is from. So you want to make sure you're aware of, you know, you read the newspaper, you know what's going on. And so if there are any big corporate, anti-corporate issues or big things that are going on, you may need to probe that. You know, if there's, um, you know, some some savings and loan failed or some bank failed uh, and you want to understand that because you may have to voir dire that uh, if you're representing a financial institution that in, in, in the case, just by way of example. So I think, you know, it's important to just really be cognizant of where you're practicing, what the jury pool might be considering and what's happening in your communities. That's a great tip. So talking about kind of more about client testimony as you, as we go through a trial, what other tips might you have in terms of, so you had, you presented your, your folks for depositions, probably were videotaped. How do you go about making sure that you're presenting great testimony from your client to make sure that your client is relatable to the jury. Yeah, it, it's so important to to humanize your client and your client's a corporation and they're they're not a human, but they're they're people who work there, right? And and that's that's what you want to make sure the jury understands that who those people are, what are the values of that corporation and those values are emblematic of the of, and evidenced by the people who work there. And so you want to make sure you've marshaled the, the best witnesses you could to tell that story. I mean, perhaps it's a corporation that wasn't always a giant corporation, but was a, a small corporation at one point uh, that, that started out small, a family business. Uh, and you want to tell that story and have 
have the right people telling it, going back to what you mentioned earlier and we discussed. So that to me is critical, the humanizing of of the corporation. And it may be, as we said earlier, best done not by the CEO. Uh, it may be best done by someone who's working on a different uh, level of the organization in operations or in finance or in human resources or in different departments who can best tell the best parts of the story of that company and humanizing them and letting know that the values of the company are the same values that the jury has. Not necessarily expressly saying that, of course, but explaining that through the evidence, through the facts of the case. I think that is really a critical piece. You know, I would just add one thing to that, Mitch, which is you definitely can't have, you need to put on witnesses, real witnesses that can really speak to the corporation. But, you know, I think sometimes, and we had talked about this before, the the jury wants to hear from, from whoever the face of the company is, right? So it's not, I know oftentimes CEOs are actually terrible witnesses because they don't really know the day-to-day of what's going on, depending on the subject of the litigation. But sometimes, you know, there may be merit in bringing in the head honcho, mostly to, to show that the corporation is willing to be accountable and willing to be present in the courtroom, that nobody's, you know, above the law. That person is not above being there. You know, we talked about that a little bit in our article from last year, but I think it's it's an important point that depending on the circumstances, depending on what's at issue, it may be important for whoever the figurehead of the organization is to make an appearance and, you know, be visible to the jury. That's a great point, Kat. Uh, the last thing you want to do is have the jury in the jury room in deliberation saying, boy, I, I, I wish we had heard from the CEO or the CFO. You know, there must be a reason why he or she didn't, didn't testify. Well, I think you don't want the jury to think that the CEO is passing the buck or blaming kind of lower level folks for whatever happened that caused uh, the case to be filed. And so I think Kat raises a really great point in that having the CEO or the owner of the company take responsibility, take accountability for what happened and say, look, you know, the, you know, I'm not going to pass the buck. I'll take responsibility. That seems to be extremely important. And, you know, there are cases where, you know, liability is undeniable, but uh, there are kind of damage, damages questions that the jury is going to answer. So in that case, that seems to be a really important thing for a CEO or an owner to take responsibility, take accountability. So uh, the jury can understand, okay, well, look, you know, they're, they're, they're taking some responsibility for what happened. Now let's talk about damages and, and kind of calculate based on that. So, yeah, I think Kat, that's a really, really important point. All right. So let's talk about kind of uh, another phase of litigation, which is opening and closing statements. Uh, Mitch, any tips for opening and closings? So, yeah, I think in the opening, you want to address these issues head on. And in the closing, obviously, they have different purposes and you'll do it in different ways. But you want to address the areas where you need to admit your bad facts and take ownership. You do it. Uh, And the areas where there are disputes and, and you need to show there's no liability uh, and explain explain the facts to the juries about why why your client should be found not liable. You lay that out. But I, I do think it's not it's important not to run away from the, the bad facts because and that's really if you did run away from them, it just plays into the anti-corporate bias that we've been talking about. Right. 
And if I'm the plaintiff's lawyer there, I'm, I'm making a lot about that. Uh, I'm making a lot of hay about the fact that they won't even acknowledge what's, what's incontrovertible, right? And so you shouldn't, shouldn't spend a lot of time debating that which you're not going to be contesting. Take ownership of it and then move on and move on to demonstrating why, as I said earlier, through, through the evidence, why you are a good corporate citizen, why you do take accountability, but also why you're not liable. Uh, obviously, if you're at trial and you're giving an opening or a closing, you've marshaled the evidence and decided that this is such a case that we're not settling, but we're going to trial because the, the facts and the law are on our side. And so at that point, it's about dealing with those issues and trying to limit anti-corporate bias through, again, hopefully using voir dire to get those off who you, you think would not be good jurors for those reasons humanizing your client, and then in opening and closing, and more so in closing, marshalling the evidence and, and hopefully had a good testimony from your, your witnesses during the trial and marshalling that evidence and using that, that testimony in a persuasive way to convince the jury uh, that it should be found not liable. And I do like uh, what you said earlier in terms of uh, humanizing the client and, and perhaps using your opening statement to do so. I mean, I, I've seen I've seen it done very effectively over the years and in, in using an opening to introduce the jury to a client and what that means. So if you have a company who's, you know, a mom and pop uh, company that kind of, you know, grew up and, and grew in a community, using the opening to introduce the jury to that story, I think it seems to be, you know, has been very important that I've seen. Oh, absolutely. Though you can't get those moments back. There's been some research about how uh, uh, juries often decide where they're going to go after the opening and the first witness. And so the, humanizing your client in your opening and having a good first witness, if you're the plaintiff, of course, and if you're the defendant, having a really strong witness starting your case are just critical. Great. Well, let's talk about kind of the last topic, which is uh, jury instructions, uh, perhaps kind of the most important uh, procedural thing that you, you can do during the trial. Kat, do you want to give us some uh, tips on uh, how to craft those jury instructions? Yeah. What Mitch and I learned in, in looking at this topic is at the end of the trial, the last and best thing that a corporate defense lawyer can do is propose a specific jury instruction. I mean, it, it calls out the elephant in the room and it gives it a name. And there are pattern jury instructions out there. The 11th Circuit has a rather long one, um, but it doesn't need to be long to remind the jurors to treat corporations and uh, individuals the same. Um, uh, one that I really liked when I was researching this was uh, it goes like this. Do not let bias, prejudice, or sympathy play any part in your deliberations. A corporation and all other persons are equal before the law and must be treated as equals in a court of justice. It's very short and sweet and to the point. And, you know, in my experience, and I'm sure you would agree with this, Mitch, uh, jurors take their their duty very seriously. Um, and they take the, the jury instructions very seriously. So reminding them in that context, when they're hearing from the judge, to not let bias, prejudice, or sympathy play any part in their deliberations is something that they take with them into the deliberation room and can really be an effective way at the very end to make sure that that anti-corporate bias, even if it's there, doesn't affect the verdict. 
So we're nearing the end of our discussion and wanted to find out if you had any final thoughts to share with our guests. So Mitch, do you have any final thought for our audience regarding how to combat anti-corporate bias uh, in your potential jury pool? Sure. And again, Dave, thanks for having us. So I really think this is about trial lawyers being conscious of these biases uh, and being intentional and proactive about handling them, not reactive. And of course, corporations need to be conscious uh, of these and proactive about these biases as well. So treating people well is a good business model, right? And it, 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 there's a lot of good economic reasons to do that. And there are a lot of reasons to do that, obviously, morally. But there are also good reasons to do it in the event that you end up being one of the many companies that get hailed into court or hauled into court, excuse me, and you want to make sure you've done laid the groundwork for having an excellent reputation uh, for being a good corporate citizen. And, and so you've leveled the playing field as much as you can, given the anti-corporate bias that we've talked about during our conversation. So I hope those are some of the, the takeaways from, from our discussion. And uh, Kat, any final thoughts? I agree with Mitch. You know, being a good citizen in the community, it's important because juries are drawn from the community. So if you're good to your community, then, you know, by extension, you're being good to your jury pool and you'll likely face them as jurors in a trial. So it makes all the sense in the world to just be a good citizen. Excellent. Well, great tips. Uh, Mitchell Edwards, Catherine Savage, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Thanks very much, Dave. And now it's time for a quick tip from the ABA litigation section's mental health and wellness task force. And I'd like to welcome Erin Clifford for her first tip on the podcast. Erin is a lawyer and director of marketing and business development at Clifford Law Offices in Chicago. She provides overall management of strategic business development, such as planning, coordinating, and implementation of marketing and business plans. She's also the founder of Erin Clifford Wellness, where she works with families, professionals, and corporations in creating and maintaining healthy lifestyles through nutrition, life, and wellness coaching. Welcome to the show, Erin. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I understand you're going to be talking about boundaries today. So what's your quick tip? So my quick tip is that it's really important that we set personal and professional boundaries. So boundaries are really the limits and rules that we set for ourselves in life, the workplace, and in relationships. Creating personal boundaries is a really great way to help you organize your life. I always think about this as putting that oxygen mask rule on. We need to take care of ourselves first before we can take care of others. So when we think about setting personal boundaries, you know, keep in mind that you want to have a morning and evening routine. This is a great way to get an exercise, mindfulness, eating nutritious food, and time for family and self-care. And maintaining a consistent sleep schedule and technology cutoff time is super important, as is using your no button and being intentional about selecting your social obligations. Perhaps you commit to a select number a month instead of saying yes to all invitations. And also by protecting your emotional well-being and putting your time and energy into relationships that are actually meaningful to you. A great way to make sure that we keep our boundaries in place is by recognizing our limits. When are we taking on too much? Listening to your body when you feel exhausted or mentally overwhelmed. And making decisions based on your personal values as opposed to those of a friend or a colleague. And beyond setting all of these personal values, it's really important that we create them in the workplace too. 
So we want to be clear communicators and own our worth in the workplace. It's also important to know your strengths and weaknesses so you can best serve your clients and ask for additional resources when necessary. Also finding ways to incorporate things into your work that you're passionate about, you know, whether it's pro bono services, mentorship, or being active in an organization like the ABA. And also identifying your non-negotiables when it comes to your work schedule and non-emergency work emails and calls after hours. And creating clear structure for yourself during your workday and also being mindful of others' time. For example, if you have a meeting, you know, set a structure for it. And finally, it's really important to know your daily energy and workflow. You know, when do you routinely feel more energized and when do you feel more drained? When possible, schedule meetings and engage in larger tasks when you have more energy and save the smaller tasks like returning emails and paperwork for when your battery is running low. As leaders in the profession, we can use our personal and work boundaries as a template to shift the culture in our organizations and create a more cohesive and healthier environment that enables us to best serve our clients and guard against burnout and compassion fatigue. Reasonably putting yourself first is not selfish. It's a necessity that ultimately serves the greater good. Well, thanks, Aaron. Great tips. Really appreciate it. And uh, I'm going to be using that no button tip um, in the future. So thanks so much for being on the show today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, that's all we have for our show today. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about today's episode. If you have a comment or a question you'd like for me to answer on an upcoming show, you can email me at dscrivenyoung without the hyphen at gmail.com and connect with me on social. I'm at Attorney DSY on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also connect with the ABA litigation section on those platforms as well. But as much as I'd like to connect with you online, nothing beats meeting you in person at one of our next litigation section events. So please make plans to join us at the Insurance Coverage Litigation Committee CLE Seminar in Tucson, March 1st through the 4th. At this seminar, you'll learn about the very latest developments in insurance law from leading lawyers and insurance professionals. This year's meeting will feature the same high-quality programming that, that has attracted insurance practitioners from all over the United States and other parts of the globe for over 30 years. To find out more and for registration information, please go to ambar.org slash litigation insurance. If you like the show, please help spread the word by sharing a link to this episode with a friend or through a post on social and invite others to join the show and community. If you want to leave a review over at Apple Podcasts, it's incredibly helpful. Even a quick rating at Spotify Podcasts, it's incredibly helpful as well. And finally, I want to quickly thank some folks who make the show possible. Thanks to Michelle Obert, who's on staff with the litigation section for her help, as well as our fabulous producer, Rich Rivera. Thank you, Rich, for all of your hard work as always. Thanks also goes out to my fellow co-chairs of the litigation section audio content committee josh jones and tyler true thank you to the audio professionals from legal talk network and last but not least thank you so much for listening i'll see you next time